Welcome to Baseball Season 1968, the year of the pitcher. Game one of the 1968 World Series. In a season owned by pitchers, the greatest of them all is adding an historic chapter to a remarkable year. Jim Norfolk made a joke out of it. He said, I didn't know God was black. <laughs> Everybody started laughing, you know. Yeah! A new World Series record for Bob Gibson. By this point, the record comes as no surprise. In fact, it's the culmination of a season that will be forever known simply as the year of the pitcher. That was a dominant season for pitchers, and Gibson was incredible, you know, McLean. Dennis McLean did something which pitchers don't even dream about anymore. He won 31 games. Wins were just one measurement of the mound dominance pervading the game. Siebert, Marty Shaw, a lot of those guys having a great year. Juan Marichal had 30 complete games that year and won 26. Then there was the bevy of microscopic ERAs. I got 1.60 in the American League, you know. There were seven pitchers that year with ERAs under two. The average number of runs scored in a major league game was only 6.8. That's for both teams combined. That was the lowest average since the 1908 season. Along the way, the pitching performances resonated well beyond the field. I want to express my uh, high regard to uh, Don Drysdale. Yeah! Who pitched his uh, sixth straight shutout tonight. And in a year that began with another Kennedy taking aim at the White House. In baseball, the great pitching could also be traced back to the beginning of the decade and one of the most memorable hitting seasons in history. 1961 was a year of change for the United States because it was the year that John Kennedy, the youngest president ever elected, moved into the White House. And it was also a year of change in baseball because for 60 years, from 1901 through 1960, the two major leagues had each consisted of 18 leagues. But in 1961, the American League expanded, adding two new teams, the Washington Senators, and the Los Angeles Angels. More teams meant more players and diluted pitching in the big leagues, all leading to an offensive explosion. Two balls, no strikes on Roger Maris. Here's the windup. Roger Maris's record 61 homers in 1961 topped his previous career best by 22. There were others who had also improved dramatically, like the Tigers' Norm Cash, who hit 41 home runs with a 361 average, 75 points higher than his 1960 clip. A lot of teams had to expand and bring up a lot of players from the minor leagues, and the pitching wasn't up to par. In 1962, when the NL expanded to add the Houston Colt 45s and the New York Mets, it was the Dodgers' Tommy Davis who enjoyed the most dramatic improvement, as his 153 RBIs topped his career average by 95. From Maris to Cash to Davis and beyond, hitters were grabbing the headlines on the diamond. Powers that be in baseball looked at the 1961 and 62 seasons in which baseball saw a surge of offense, and they decided that to get more balance back into the game, 
Starting with 1963, the height of the pitching mound would be raised and the size of the strike zone would be increased to give more advantage to pitchers. Also favoring the hurlers, the influx of a series of new pitching-friendly ballparks. Within a few years, pitchers were regaining their footing on the mound, and then some. 1965 was the year Sandy Koufax pitched a perfect game against us. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed the perfect game. He was just a dominating pitcher. I think you could have 50, 60 major league players in here, and you ask the same question, who is the toughest pitcher that you face? And they will all say Sandy Koufax. Koufax's ascent coincided with the changes in the game. And from 1963 to 66, the left-hander enjoyed one of the greatest pitching runs ever, winning three triple crowns while leading the Dodgers to three pennants and two World Series titles. He did it. Sandy Koufax gets his tenth strikeout, his second consecutive shutout of the Twins. You're the greatest, Sandy. You're the greatest, baby. Koufax won two World Series MVP awards before retiring with arm problems in 1966. Along the way, there was only one other pitcher in the game as spectacular in October. His name was Bob Gibson. I always liked those big games. It seems like it was a time that I did my best. Bob Gibson being congratulated as he wins another big one, breaks the all-time World Series record by winning his seventh World Series game in a row. The Cardinals' right-hander was the most intimidating pitcher in the game, and he was at his fiercest in the fall classic. Gibson was the MVP of the 1964 World Series, leading the Cardinals over the Yankees. Then he was even better in the 67 Series, beating the Red Sox three times to earn the honor again. There's no greater feeling than uh, the feeling that I had today. Gibson and the Cardinals entered 1968 as the defending World Series champions, loaded with confidence in what would be a year to remember from the mound. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Here's a man that wanted to share his life with not only the black people of America, but everybody. He wanted peace, equality for everybody. And once he got shot and killed, I think time stood still. Martin Luther King Jr. was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Shot in the face as he stood alone on the balcony of his hotel room. I said, Dr. King, just as he straightened up, he said, Dr. King, and the bullet exploded in his face. And no word of mine can fill the void of the eloquent voice that has been stilled. King's assassination sparked rioting in cities all across the country, further wounding a nation already being torn apart by war protests, social revolution, and the battle for civil rights. I came up during that era with Dr. King. I came up through that era that my first five years or so, it was tough. I caught the tail end of Jackie Robinson. I went to Lakeland, Florida. I couldn't stay with the white players. So at that time, I got very scared because it was a world concern, because he was a world-type spokesman or leader. And for a week, I didn't understand how to answer for myself or my family. We were riding home from the Astrodome when the news came that Martin Luther King had been shot. And there I am in the back seat of a car with... Johnny Roseboro, and I'm thinking, what can I say? 
and we're riding back, and all of a sudden Rosie said, I like the grip on that slider you're working. He took it totally out of there onto baseball. Before that, it probably was one of the most uncomfortable moments uh, that I've ever experienced. With the assassination rocking the country, Major League Baseball took the unprecedented step of postponing opening day. Everybody wants me. People still hadn't recovered from the shock of the assassination of Dr. King, and it was a tough time. So I think it was the right decision to postpone the opening. Particularly prudent in the city of Detroit, which had become all too familiar with race riots during the previous summer. The tanks have both pulled up and stopped, and they've got their machine guns pointed. They've got a searchlight up on the third floor of a brick building. Those 1967 riots decimated one of the great American cities. 25 square miles of the city burned to the ground. 43 people were killed. 7,000 people were arrested. It was a death blow in so many ways to the city of Detroit. Detroit ballplayers did not escape the chaos. In fact, at times, they were in the middle of it. Mickey Lolich was a member of the National Guard. He has to literally change uniforms. He takes off his baseball uniform and has to put on his National Guard uniform. He's one of these 8,000 National Guard members who are called out to control the streets in Detroit. I end up leaving the ballpark in my uniform. Uh, end up over on 12th Street. I was just up on my hood of my car and then trying to talk to the people, try to come to the crowd. But the people are more concerned Willie Horton getting hurt. Willie Horton was the single greatest reason that there was a beginning of a unification in that city. Willie was such a tremendous player. He was a hometown hero. And as that season progressed, there were more and more blacks who would sit in left field right behind their hero, Willie Horton. And improbably, during that frightening summer of 67, Willie Horton and his teammates also found themselves in a pennant race. Tigers had not been a contender for many, many years. And then 1967, we had a great pennant race in the American League. And it actually came down to the last day of the season. Little soft pop-up. Petroselli will take it. He does. The ball game is over. A Red Sox win and Tiger doubleheader split on that final day of 67 left Detroit one game short. And while Boston celebrated, fans in the Motor City were left to continue the cleanup from the riots while contemplating another empty winter without a title. You begin the 1968 season in spring training with the thoughts of that abject failure at the end of 67 hanging over the head of the team. Bill, can the Tigers do it this year? Well, Ernie, I'll tell you what. We gained something last year by virtue of the fact that we had a lot of young guys who went through an experience we'd never been through before, and we're going to win in 68. From Jim Northrup to Mickey Stanley to Al Kaline, they said that it just wasn't going to happen again. They knew they had a great baseball team. That confidence got the Tigers started with nine wins in their first ten games and a steady hold on first place in the American League by early June. And as the Tigers started hot, no one was hotter than their ace right-hander Danny McLean, who took to the mound loaded with talent and tenacity. God gave me a pretty good arm. 
and he gave me a great ability to throw the ball where I wanted to throw it. And I was told early in my career, as hard as you throw, if you don't walk anybody, you got a chance of winning a lot of ball games. And in 68, McLean would win more of them than anyone. Well, this has been the year of the pitcher in baseball. As the 1968 baseball season unfolded, in both leagues, it was undeniable. Pitchers were more dominant than ever. He's it out. There were fewer hits and fewer runs. I can recall losing five one to nothing ball games. Lots of strikeouts and plenty of shutouts. Well, he's got it. It's all over. And no one was winning more than the cocky 24-year-old right-hander in Detroit, Denny McLean. Denny had the guts of a burglar, and he would just go out there, throw the ball, boom, here it is, hit it. He's striking out. You know, he, he was phenomenal. Oh, McLean's sailing along here. He was very cocky, uh, very confident. And the day that I go out to pitch is the day that I think I'm the best in baseball ever was or ever will be. And, and I think if you're going to be a success in this game, that's the way you've got to be. Denny McLean. In 68, the multi-talented McLean, who often spent nights playing keyboards in Detroit bars, got off to a start befitting of his self-confidence. And by the All-Star break, he was leading the ALN wins as the ace of the first-place Tigers. McLean comes to the All-Star break with 16 victories. And McLean was just the start, as all around the game, pitchers were befuddling hitters. In Cleveland, Cuban-born right-hander Luis Tian won 14 games over the first half of 68, including a streak of 42 consecutive scoreless innings. Tian suddenly blossomed this year into a great pitcher. Luis Tian, if you need one game, he's the guy to take charge. Third time in a row he's gotten Yuspensky. Louis Tiant, maybe one of the funniest guys you'd ever want to play with. A uh, great teammate, and he had a, a tremendous year that year. Headlined by a masterful 19 strikeout performance in early July against the Twins. And he struck him out on a high fastball. For me, it was my best game, pitching on baseball. Tian's sterling effort followed James Catfish Hunter's perfect game in May. The first regular season no-hit, no-walk, no-error game in the American League since 1922. There's Catfish on the mound in Minnesota twirling a perfect game. It just symbolized the kind of domination that pitchers had that season. like every pitch that night I knew where I could throw it. I had great control. I felt like I could throw a fastball a little bit faster if I wanted to. Catfish was one of those guys. He could hit spots like nobody else and that was one of those perfect nights when he hit the perfect spots all night long. In Los Angeles, Don Drysdale's signature performance was spread over seven outings, 58 and two-thirds consecutive scoreless innings which broke a Walter Johnson record that had stood for 55 years. The one-two pitch to Pena. Swung on a ground ball wide at third. It's Boyer who has the chance. He's done it. I've never really been a record freak or anything like that. And I just say records are there to be broken. And someday somebody will come along and, uh, and they'll probably do the same thing that I did. There were also notable nights by future stars in 68. 
Like when a fireballing Mets rookie named Nolan Ryan became just the ninth pitcher in NL history to strike out the side on nine pitches. Nolan Ryan, one of the brilliant young pitchers that the New York Mets have come up with. When you look back, it just was phenomenal, some of the pitching performances uh, that you saw that year. But the indisputable king of the hill in 68 was an ace for St. Louis. There was a guy by the name of Bob Gibson who was absolutely fantastic. Strike three. And 1968 seemed to be the culmination of Gibson's perfection of his craft. If you would just go back and look into the records and you watch my career leading up to 1968, you would see that there was an improvement every year. Even so, his season didn't start all that auspiciously. Gibson starts the season three and five as June rolls around. Among those five losses, several low-scoring games where he pitched very well. And then June starts, and he just starts on a roll. Gibson has had five shutouts in a row. But he's allowed only one run in his last 65 innings. Gibson was capable of throwing shutouts, no-hitters almost every time out. And at the midway point of what was already a phenomenal year for pitchers, the top hurler in the game had the defending World Series champion Cardinals in first place in the National League. The fabulous Astrodome, the eighth wonder of the world. You have to see it to believe it. The 1968 All-Star Game was filled with firsts, played indoors on artificial turf, and with a Cuban expatriate on the mound for the American League. And be nominated to the All-Star Game to open the game. That's a great feeling. Leading off for the National League, Willie Mays was making one of his 24 All-Star Game appearances. Mays at the bounding ball by Rick Robinson in the left field. The, the problem was Willie May hit a base hit. I tried to pick him out on first base. I surprised Killebrew. Ball gets away. There goes Mays at second. And he's in there. On second, Mays continued to distract the Indians' ace. Keon working now, three and two to Kurt Flood. That's over the head of the catcher. There goes Mays to third. Wild pitch charge against Keon. The other guy hit a, a ground ball. A cover. Bounty ball to Peru. They go for one, back to first, double play, and in the score is Willie Mays. From there, the cavalcade of all-star pitchers took over the game. And he struck him out on a high fastball. At one point, National League hurlers retired 20 batters in a row. The 2 2 pitch. Man, strikes him out. Fittingly, after just a combined eight hits and 20 strikeouts, the game ended with a 1-0 final score. Of course, as unsettling as the season was to hitters, there was far greater upheaval in American society. Six weeks before the All-Star game, Robert Kennedy had been assassinated in Los Angeles. And as the summer of 68 went on, baseball continued to be shadowed by the chaos of the day. At that time, with, with the social turmoil that was going on, and very famous political persons getting killed. We were not immune to what was going on. 1968, that was a frightening time. It sort of polarized us as individual teammates, kind of like 9-11 did for New York and other cities. Across the world, the Vietnam War was continuing, and at home, anti-war protests had surged. 
It was so bad because our young people were being shot up and wounded and killed. And really, the country was not behind it. The mayhem reached a new level in August with riots in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention. Whatever kind of off-field activities that are going on, my escape was always the diamond, the game itself. What many of the veteran players said and felt was that it increased our responsibility as an outlet for people. Nowhere was that responsibility greater than in Detroit. A year earlier, riots had ravaged the Motor City. Now, as the summer of 68 wreaked havoc across the country, the first place Tigers were a unifying local force. The fact that the, the Tigers had, had gone through the 67 riots in 68, everybody got behind the team, and sort of pulled the city together. When the Tigers started to win, and in the way that they won, the whites from the north suburbs started to come back into Tiger Stadium. The city was behind the Tigers 100%, and the team knew it. The members of the team had absolute faith in each other. Willie Horton summed it up. We play like a family. We were so focused on 6th day and, and try to calm the peace in the city. We brought black and white people together, what we established as a ball team. I remember Al Kaline saying, we would go out together, we would party together, we would hang together. So there was no racial divide. Close, off the field and on, the Tigers got contributions all season long from players up and down their roster. See, an important thing winning is your bench. Gates Brown, uh, Tom Manchek, uh, Jim Price. We had great respect in each other. As one guy go down, that bench was ready. And what better bench insurance than the extra hitting power of Matthews and Comer? It seemed like every time they had a chance to play, they produced and helped us win ball games. Thanks to their deep bench, no game was ever out of reach for the Tigers. We know we played to the last track. 3-2 pitch. He swings. There's a long one. And that one is out of here. A home run. The Tigers lead it 2 to nothing. You almost got the feeling, if you were a run ahead in the seventh inning, that you were behind. The Tigers got 40 victories in the seventh inning or later. 27 in their last at bat. We never thought, never thought that we was out of game till they throw the last strike. And as the Tigers remained comfortably atop the American League standings as Labor Day approached, their success and frequent late-game heroics not only epitomized their city's resilience, but offered hope to fans who could find little of it elsewhere. I know that the Tigers that I've talked to say that it wasn't them. They just went out and played the game. Did they save the city? Did they unite the city? Yeah, in some ways they did save that city. Unquestionably, they helped heal the city. And unless you were there, and unless you experienced it, I don't think you can really feel the way I feel. With pitching reigning supreme throughout the 1968 baseball season, offensive numbers consequently reached historic lows. It was one of those years where you kind of thought that the batters were carrying around extra weight in the bats. Number 
first heaven, Mickey Mantle. At age 36, Mickey Mantle hit 237, the lowest average of his career, but still 23 points higher than the Yankees' team average. Mantle hit the high five ball. Mantle had been perhaps the most popular player in the game in the 1960s. But age and injuries had taken their toll in the 18th season of a storied career. And the Mick decided 68 would be his final year. His reactions to real good fastballs up and in, he just didn't get to like he did most of his life. As the Yankee icon took his final bows, there was little question who had assumed the mantle as the American League's best hitter an outfielder in Boston named Carl Yastrzemski. In the year of the pitcher, Yastrzemski was the only player in the AL to hit over 300, winning his second straight batting title with a 301 clip. It might be an example of pitching dominance when you, you know, when you win a batting title with an average that low. Home run for Carl Yastrzemski. Base hit the center. For yes, they had 301 and lead the league and hitting with all the great hitters we had. If you go back and check the numbers of some of those great hitters, it's just remarkable how low they were. As batting averages fell across the majors, so did home runs. Several teams didn't have anyone with 20 or more, and only seven sluggers would finish with over 30. The NL was led by a feared slugger in San Francisco with 36 round trippers. First baseman, Willie McCovey. McCovey over the first base, the most feared hitter I saw while I was playing in Major League Baseball. There she goes, way back, about it. Willie McCovey, without a doubt, was a dangerous hitter. He was a low ball, fastball, slider hitter. McCovey is driving to right field, it's gone. In the American League, McCovey's numbers were eclipsed by a six-foot, seven-inch slugger for Washington, nicknamed the Capital Punisher, Frank Howard who blasted 44 home runs. Frank might have been the most intimidating hitter that I ever faced. Frank was 6'7", I think about 300 pounds. He's the biggest, strongest uh, baseball player I've ever seen. Here's a five in the center field. Over his head, up against the mitt. First hit of the game. If there was one hitter uh, that would strike fear into you, it would be Frank Howard. Howard's power numbers were far and away the best in baseball. Not unlike the pace set by the Cincinnati Reds hitting machine Pete Rose, who led the majors with 210 hits and a 335 average. 68 was one of 10 seasons Pete Rose would finish with over 200 hits. Base hit for Pete Rose. 200 hits means you have to stay healthy, you have to play almost every game. And you got to hit 330, or, or pretty close to it. The consistency of Rose was legendary. Much like the Braves' Hank Aaron, whose steadiness had him on the cusp of a home run milestone. His concentration and focus was just unbelievable. You know, he didn't miss pitches. He wouldn't all hit them all out of the ballpark, but he'd hit the ball hard someplace. He would center that ball as well as anybody, you know, I'd ever seen. On July 14th, he hit his 500th home run, a feat only seven other players in baseball history had attained to that point. 3-1-5. There's the drive into left field. That ball is going, going, and out of here. 
but even Hank Aaron would fall victim to the great pitching of 68. With his lowest RBI total since his rookie season and an average nearly 30 points below his career mark to that point. In baseball's time-tested duel of pitcher versus hitter, the victor was clear in 1968. And as the season drew to a close, pitchers continued to show their mastery on the mound. In September, Gaylord Perry of the Giants and Ray Washburn of the Cardinals hurled back-to-back no-hitters in a 24-hour period at the same ballpark. The only time that's ever happened. Giants pitcher Juan Marichal won 26 games. And Indian Luis Tiant won 21. And with a 1.60 ERA, the Cuban was part of an illustrious group. 1968, seven pitchers have ERAs under two. I mean, that's just, that looks like a misprint. As the season continued, the debate began over exactly why the pitchers were so decisively dominating the hitters. Everything goes in cycles anyway. Like today, if there's a lot of offense, then teams start drafting and training pitchers. Others proposed that the height of the mound gave pitchers an advantage, arguing the angle of a pitch from the mound was now too extreme for the hitters to handle. I don't think mound height had anything to do with it, simply because the mound had been the same height for a long time, and pitchers had good years, pitchers had bad years, but it just seemed that year everything fell in place. Most notably for an ace with a certain singular attitude in St. Louis. When I think of Bob Gibson, I think of him as a player as a miserable SOB. I hated him and he hated me and that's all right. He hated everybody. He hated Santa Claus. He was a mean black man. I mean, he was mean. He didn't take no prisoners. He demanded respect. He got it. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, (laughs) he was one of the greatest pitchers I've ever faced. My mindset was to challenge pretty much everybody. Bob considered the pitching mound his office, and nobody entered his office unless he was asking. And that included hitters, and it included his catcher, too. My wife used to go to the restroom when I faced and give Because you don't want to see it, <laughs> I guess. I can honestly say he is the most competitive pitcher I ever met. In 1968, that competitive fire translated into one of the most brilliant seasons a pitcher has ever had. As Gibson tallied a set of incredible numbers and a game built upon them. Everybody gets wrapped up in statistics in baseball. But with Bob Gibson in 1968, you have to talk about him because the statistics just blow you away. He had 13 shutouts that year, 28 complete games and 34 starts. Gibson was unhittable that year. He posted a 1.12 earned run average. The most remarkable statistic was how with that earned run average, he managed to lose nine games. And I wonder if his teammates have ever been indicted for that. But along with those nine losses came 22 wins, which was more than enough to lead the Cardinals to a third NL pennant in five years. As impressive as Gibson was, Detroit Tiger Danny McLean eclipsed 22 wins long before season's end. He may have been a part-time keyboard player, 
but he was a full-time ace for the first place Tigers. I remember Denny McClain coming into Yankee Stadium, and he had not lost a road game all year. He had already won about 25 games already. I beat him 2-1 to one that game. I had a call in the training room, and it, it was Denny. And he said, uh, what are you doing? What are you doing? He said, I'm trying to win 30 games. What are you doing? And I said, Denny, I'm trying to put together and, and hopefully maybe win 20 games this year, and you're thinking about 30? You know, and I hung up on him. <laughs> so. To McLean, covering, and he's got it. 28 wins for Denny McLean. You think you'll ever see a 30-game winner again? You don't even see 25-game winners. That year in 68, McLean win 31 games. That's where he, he taken this young away from me. When the regular season ended in 1968, for the last time without league championship playoffs, the Tigers and Cardinals were headed to the World Series. As the year of the pitcher turned the page, to a most satisfying final chapter. Starting the World Series was a Bob Gibson who had that terrific earned run average, and he was pitching against the sterling Denny McLean, who'd won 31 games. Two of the great pitchers of their time matched in that very first game. Have both those individuals in a one World Series game, that was a highlight. Tigers a great team having won 103 games and done everything they did they were playing one of the great National League teams of all time though they shared success the fall classic combatants took different approaches to victory on the diamond so it would appear to be speed balance the Cardinals against the power of the Tigers but sport has a precedent sometimes of not coming out the way it was supposed to the series began with a most impressive postseason pitching matchup. Bob Gibson and his 1.12 ERA taking on Denny McLean and his 31 wins. Two of the great pitchers of their time matched in that very first game in the St. Louis. Here's the pitch. It's a strike called. He stuck him out. Gibson delivers. The Aces matched zeros for three innings, but in the fourth, the cards struck against McLean. The Cardinals lead three to nothing on Javier single right. Staked to the lead, Gibson began piling up strikeouts at an impressive rate. We knew, of course, behind Gibson that a team that had not faced Bob Gibson all year, that it was going to be tough to handle. His location was so great, and his ball was moving. Gibson had won five games in his previous two World Series. His sixth would be his start. It's amazing when you think about it how the Detroit Tigers got the few hits that they did. Well, the Tigers are glad game one is over. And as they all said yesterday in tribute to Bob Gibson, no club, nobody could have beat Gibson yesterday as good as he was. We had to come back and say, hey, we, this is our, our team, this is the Tigers. We got to go out there the next day and play. And in game two, it would be Willie Horton who jump-started the Tiger offense. 
There she goes, way back. It might be out of here. It's home run. Horton's power supply may have been expected, but a blast from one of his teammates was not. Power about that one. Though the cards hadn't accounted for Lolich's bat, they did have a scouting report on the 17-game winner. Roger Maris told us in late July that if we play the Detroit Tigers, which we probably will, that Denny McLean's not going to be our toughest assignment. It's going to be Mickey Lolich. Lolich has been using a sinking fastball, breaking pitches, mixing them up, moving that ball around, in and out, up and down. That roly-poly donut maker out of uh, Lake Orion, Michigan, really just stood his ground on the mound and came up so big. That's it. The Tigers have even the World Series at one apiece. The series shifted to Detroit with the Tigers' confidence in their bats revived. And the city that had been in tatters a year earlier stood united for its ball club. But it would be another offense that broke out at Tigers Stadium in game three. Orlando Cepeda had a three-run homer, and I had a three-run homer in game three. There's a drive deep to right, and that one is sailing into the seat. A three-run homer for Tim McCarver. They talked about the Tiger power, but the Cardinals said, well, no, we've got some fellas that can hit, too. Those first two games at, uh, at Tiger Stadium, we were very comfortable hitting. The Cardinals now go out in front of the series two games to one. They bring Gibson back tomorrow, and McLean will go against him. From the very first batter of game four, though, it was apparent. Round two of the marquee pitching showdown would be a one-sided battle. Boy, Lou Brock gets that one a country mile. The card's leadoff man seemed intent on showing power and speed were both big parts of his game. Lou Brock was the type of guy that got on base. He could disrupt the whole team. The throw is not in time. That's his seventh stolen base, and he has just tied his own World Series record. Even with the highlights from Brock, there was no denying the headline. Bob Gibson appeared simply untouchable. The dominance by Gibson in the first two times he faced Detroit, allowing only one run in 18 innings. We had seen what he had done, and we realized how unhittable he was all year long, that we didn't think anybody could beat Bob Gibson. The Tigers were down three games to one, a deficit only two teams in series history had ever come back from. Down 3-1 in the 1968 World Series, the Tigers, like their city the year before, were facing daunting odds of survival. They've got their backs to the wall. I think they know that. There's no tomorrow unless they can win the day. And, of course, as you said, they're putting all their eggs in the basket of one Mickey Lolich. A year before, Lolich had helped restore order to his team's city as a National Guardsman. Now the left-hander was trying to keep his team's season alive. But in the first, the red-hot Lou Brock's leadoff double jump-started a three-run rally, and it appeared that Cards were going to cruise to a second straight world title. And these Cardinal bats continue to boom at Tiger Stadium. In the fifth, with a 3-2 lead, the Cards were again threatening with Brock on second base. We picked up in our report that when Luke was on second, he'd go around, the, uh, he'd go take off, and he'd drift around the third, and drift in the home plate. Line drive in the left. Horton's up with it. Brock being waved around. The throw by Horton. And he is safe. Out! Oh, no! 
If he had a run like Luke Brock, we wouldn't have came close. And when uh, Brock is called out, ultimately the, the big key of that play leaves Mickey Lolich in the game. And in turn, Lolich was keeping the Tigers in the game. But down a run, the team needed one more comeback. We had a, a veteran ball club, and uh, we, we, we had a saying that the seventh inning, now it's our time. Base is loaded, one out. Cardinals lead by a run in the seventh inning. There's a drive into right center, a base hit for Kaline, a run in. There's another one coming in, and the Tigers have taken the lead. If Lolich could keep the lead, the Tigers would survive for another day. It comes right down to strength against strength, and Lolich against Brock. There's a tap to the pitcher. It should be over. Over to Cash, and it's all over. Mickey Lolich turns in a great job. We had the Tigers three games of one. We had an opportunity to put them away, and we allowed them to get off the deck. But Detroit still had to win two games back in St. Louis. In game six, they came out swinging from the start. A run's going to score. There's a drive. It's going to be a grand slam. Another hit. One run is in. Another man's going to score. The Tigers' offensive explosion evened the series and forced the deciding game seven. Detroit has tied the series three games off. A few days ago, it was a cardinal runaway. And now, it goes down to the final day. It was a cruel reward for the Tigers' resolve. Baseball's greatest pitcher at the height of his powers. The Cardinals are calling on Bob Gibson to win them a world championship. He won in the seventh game of 64. He won again last year in the seventh game. And he's warming up right now. Though no one could match Gibson's numbers, the Tigers had momentum and faith in Mickey Lovich. And the way the game unfolded was just so classic. Gibson versus Lovich. Six scoreless innings. Zeros across the board for the first six innings. Then, in the seventh, the Tigers got a break. They get two hits to lead it off. And Jim Northrop's the next hitter. Now the set by Gibson, we're ready. Hits a line drive to left center field. There's a swing and a fly ball to center. Here comes Flush. And Kurt Flood sucks up all the time. He almost fell down. It's over his head. That's an easy play for Flood. Cash is rounding third. He scores. Willie Horton rounding third. He scores. Northrop goes into third base. Detroit leads two to nothing. Finally, the Tigers had found a way to get some runs off of Gibson. And now, it was up to Lowlich to hold the lead. We ran up against a guy in Game 7 who not only bettered Gibson, but was better than the Cardinals uh, the three times he faced us, and that was Mickey Lowlich. Like their city the year before, the Tigers had come back from the brink. McCarver pops up. A lot of folks thought the Detroit Tigers were through, but they really have come back and have taken this 1968 World Series. When Mickey Lolich beat Bob Gibson in Game 7, I remember thinking it at the time, and I still think it today. That was probably the biggest upsets to me in baseball history. We've come back from behind all year, and we did it again. I never thought we could, but we did, and uh, I don't know, a lot of people must have been praying for it. 
and fighting back from the 3-1 deficit was only a part of the comeback story for Detroit. I just like to express uh, from the members of the team how grateful we are to the people of Detroit and the state of Michigan for supporting us like they did. We feel that uh, they sort of pulled us together and we maybe helped pull them together a little bit. Well, city of Detroit, it was just something amazing that I've seen people just come together. I think just with Ernie Harwell voice and what we did on the field, I've seen people solve their own difference, and we all came together as one as a whole at this great city. That 68 Tigers team brought a racially divided city that was under siege slowly but surely, piece by piece, back together again in ways that were really unimaginable after what happened in the riots of 67. In many ways, 1968 was the end of an era. The following year, baseball introduced divisional play. The Mets win their first baseball title, champions of the National League's Eastern Division. Although both Denny McLean and Bob Gibson would each go on to win another Cy Young Award, the domination of pitchers in 1968 led to new rules and changes designed to tilt the balance back to the hitter. The pitcher's mound was lowered. The strike zone shrunk. Coinciding with another expansion, batting numbers went up immediately across the game. But some of the averages remained lower than people wanted, and so that was the birth of the talk about the designated hitter. By 1973, a high ground ball, another base hit for Bloomberg. The American League had decided to play with a DH, and it's been a part of baseball in the American League from then till now. David Ortiz does it again! The country, of course, would move on from the turmoil of the 1960s, just as baseball moved on from the dictatorial dominance of pitchers in 1968, when pitching ruled baseball with a gloved fist to an extent the game may never see again. 